I invite you, if you have your Bible, grab one in the seat in front of you to turn with me to the book of 1 John, chapter 3. to read to you 1st John chapter 3 beginning in verse 4 through verse 10 everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin no one who abides in him keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. But no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, use your word now to instruct each of us pray that you would give us an understanding of what your word says, says to us individually as well as corporately. I pray, Father, that you would grant each of us a humble heart, ready to receive these important truths from your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last... Um, number of weeks we've been looking at the book of first john and because it's christmas time we wanted to find the most christmas um, verses in the book of first john and if you didn't notice this was a very christmas passage um, there, there's a couple of verses in there that we'll discuss in a few moments that help us understand why the son of god came into the world and this is absolutely crucial to us understanding what christmas is all about the perennial question of course christmas as a season uh, tends to be overwhelming, isn't it? Uh, it's so easy to get just overcome by all that's going on with the season, all that needs to be done, all that you need to do in order to have a successful Christmas, all the music that needs to be listened to, all the movies that needs to be watched, all the gifts that need to be bought and given, all the gatherings, all the traditions. And you kind of feel, because Christmas is such a tradition-oriented holiday, that if you don't check all the boxes of the things that you normally do, Christmas has been a failure. You just haven't gotten through everything, and you feel a little bit let down. Maybe it wasn't as bad as last year, but it's not as good as it could have been, and you'll make sure that it's better next year. That's the way we feel, isn't it? You just haven't gotten it all done. Christmas is kind of ruined. I want you to know something. And I'm sure you already know this, but it's easy to forget. This season that kind of steals us away into this 
weird world of all these things we need to do during the month of December, and all that you need to get done, does not negate the fundamental fact about Christmas, which is this. Christmas has already happened. Jesus has already been born. He has lived his life perfectly. The Son of God went to the cross to make atonement for sins so that sinners can be cleansed, washed of their sins, given new life, and Jesus rose on the third day so that he is proven to be the King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. And he ascended into heaven, and he's there right now at the right hand of God, waiting for the word to come back and claim those who are own, his own and establish his reign. So, do your traditions, have your cookies, but don't forget Christmas has happened. Christ has come. That's the best part about it all. Christ has done it. He has come. This day of Christmas, this season of Christmas, commemorates a very specific fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, Son of God, entered into this world. The eternal Son of God became incarnate. That's a huge word. That basically means that the one who existed before all time, the one through whom everything was made, took on flesh, he took on humanity, and he dwelt among us. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus, Son of God, God incarnate, living in this world. That's Christmas. That's the fact of Christmas. That's the event of Christmas, and no amount of traditions can undermine that and do it, negate it. But why did he come? For what purpose did the Son of God take on flesh and enter into this world? It's a huge question, isn't it? And it needs to be answered. It needs to be known. This text here in 1 John that I read just a few moments ago gives us two answers to that. It tells us two reasons why Jesus came into the world, why the Son of God came, why Christmas happened. And we have to consider these because I know you, you know this. I know it's so easy to get caught, caught up with the trapping and you could in, give a, a Sunday school answer about what Christmas is all about. I know you could do that, but that's, our world is kind of sticky. You can't really go through this season with all of its commercialization, all of its trappings, all of its music, all of its traditions, without some of them trying to stick onto you. And for those who follow Christ, you cannot be a sponge. You cannot be a kind of person who just absorbs everything in this world, who just kind of goes through it and lets it all soak into you. You can't be that. You need to be more like a, a sim, and letting things kind of pass through and you filter out that which is good worth keeping and let all the rottenness just pass through. But it's so easy to be a sponge because that's not really an active thing, but being a sieve and straining things through is more active. And so I hope that you'll at least consider these truths about the importance of Christ coming into the world just to remind you, just as a refresher, just as kind of like a almost a degreaser of the things that you picked up throughout the week and the month of all that Christmas is not and remember what Christmas is. Get realigned. Be reminded in the 
truth of God's word, about what's happened and what's going on. There's another purpose for these truths being given to us here in the book of 1 John about why Christ came into the world. And it's more relevant and pertinent to what this book is here for. This book of 1 John was written to people who had come to know and believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it was given to them to know that they would know that they have eternal life. So they could have certainty that they indeed have eternal life in them. Christmas, as an event of the entrance of the Son of God into the world, is the entrance of eternal life into the world, the evasion of light into darkness. And as Jesus is wont to do, his very being swings like a sword through the world to create divisions. Divisions between death and life, between light and darkness. And so Christmas as an event of the coming of the Son of, the God, of God into the world really helps to be kind of a, a distinguisher between two ends of the spectrum about whether you have life or you have death, whether you have light or whether you have darkness. And the coming of Christ helps us to know if we have life because if we know the reasons or the purposes for why he came, we'll need to see if those purposes are consistent with our life. In other words, has his purpose been accomplished in your life in a personal way? And if it hasn't been accomplished, then Christmas really hasn't been applied to you. And yet if you know why he came and you realize, yes, those are true for me, that's why he came for me, then you know that as life entered the world, you have life because he has accomplished his purpose in your life. Perhaps the most classic Christmas verse is Matthew 121. You may have it by heart, you may have heard it a million times, it says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That tells us why Jesus came into this world. He came to save. He came to save his people from their sins. This is the great news that the eternal Son of God, when he added flesh to himself, came and took on flesh for the express purpose of being able now to die. And as he died, he took on himself the sins of his people so that they would be carried to the cross and they could be forgiven of their sins. And this is the great news of the gospel that anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ can be forgiven of the mountain heap of sins that you have stored up over the course of your life and be totally wiped clean so that you owe no debt to God any longer. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why Christmas happened, so that God could give us the grace of forgiveness. And we think of this gospel news and this good Christmas news of Christ coming to save his people from their sins as primarily the forgiveness of sins. And in some ways that's right, but that's not a comprehensive enough look at it. If you come to the point and think, Jesus came so that I can be forgiven of my sins, that's great. But you got to go a little bit further. When Jesus came to be a savior and to save you from your sins, it's not just for forgiveness that he came. 
It's to remove the power and even the presence of sin from you. Not on this side of glory so you'd be sinlessly perfect, that's not the point, but says the shackles of sin are broken from you. You now live a life more and more aligned with the Son of God and His ways. And if you don't know this, you need to know this now. You need to know this, that sin is always wrong. Sin is always bad. Sin is always destructive. It is not something just to be forgiven of. It is something to be eradicated from your life. At times we, we think that there are these little sins in our life and we make no big deal, no big consequences to them. It's just me that knows about them. It's not the case at all. There are no little sins. Sin gives birth to death. Sin is always destructive, and it never directly brings anything good. God, in his sovereign wisdom, can certainly order his world so that he can indeed use sin to accomplish his purposes without him, he himself sinning. But from our situation, from our perspective, it must never be that we would sin so that God's grace would abound. That cannot be. But perhaps you've grown accustomed to this in your life. Sin in your life is just kind of there for you. You live with it. It's part of you. And you think, well, it's just who I am. I tolerate it. I accept it. Certainly I don't like it. But what's to be done about it? Or maybe you even do like it. And you know you like it. You love it and you have no desire to get rid of it. How can that be that you would tolerate sin in your life when Jesus, the Savior of the world, took on flesh to save his people from their sins, not just forgive them of their sins, but break the shackles of sin in your life? We must know the purpose for which he came not just the cancellation of the debt of sin, but also the removal of the power of sin from our life. And since sin is always wrong, always bad, always has consequences, even if you don't see them right now or right away, it is merciful and kind for our Savior to not want us to live with that sin abiding in us. It's a gracious thing, not a condemning thing, not a judgmental thing. It's a gracious thing. How can you let someone you love go on living with a cancerous tumor in them? You would do what you could to get rid of it for them if you could. Jesus Christ, Savior, came to save his people from their sins. And this is exactly what John says. In John chapter 3, he gives two reasons for why Christ came. Verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In verse 8, he says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Those statements help us understand the purpose for which Christ came into the world. And this helps us to distinguish between those who belong to him and those who don't. 
Because if he did not accomplish his purpose in you for the removal of sin, in both the forgiveness and the breaking of the power of sin in your life, then you do not belong to him. These statements in the book of 1 John fall in a section of the letter in which John is helping his readers to understand what sin is and why it must be turned away from by virtue of the very reason Christ has come. He has to do this, John does, because there have been teachers who have entered into his, the flock there, the church, that have been teaching that salvation is not so much about sin and righteousness as much about knowledge. The way that you get saved, as it were, is to reach kind of a, um, a level of knowledge about God that is higher than other people. And they would say that if you have that knowledge of God, then you have salvation too. And so you don't really need to worry about sin and righteousness. That's not really what salvation is about. It's about knowing about God. But John, on the other hand, is showing that salvation is connected to knowing the God of salvation and his son, Jesus Christ, who came to take away sins. So clearly it is about sin that cannot be dismissed. He's helping us know what God actually looks like, and it actually looks like sin has been dealt a death blow in your life by the Son of God who came, away, came to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil. So John gives several arguments at the beginning of chapter 3 against sin. He's already said in chapter 2, verse 1, the reason he's writing these things to you is so that you may not sin. Again, we have to be so understanding here because John in chapter 1 has already said that if anyone says that he's without sin, he's a liar, truth isn't in him, and he's deceived. So John's not going after this perfectionism, but he's really describing a kind of way of life where you tolerate sin, where you live with sin like it's okay, where you go forward in your life as if sin is just going to be a part of who you are and Jesus hasn't really done anything more than forgive you of that sin. That's what he's talking about. And so he gives these arguments in chapter 3 against sin. Matthew Henry, an old commentator, summarizes these arguments against sin. I can't approve on them, so I'll just give them to you. They're a little bit wordy, but I think you'll get the picture. And just to give you the context before we break down those two reasons Christ came, I want to give you these arguments against sin. He argues first against sin from the nature of sin and the intrinsic evil of it. You might be wondering, well, you know, why... Why is sin such a big deal? Everybody does it. Why should I care about it? Why do people talk about it so much? Well, it's because of the nature of what it is. Verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Those whose lives are defined by the practice of sin need to know that sin that they are engaged in is Lawlessness, not the breaking of man's law, but the breaking of God's law. It is basically saying, God, I don't care what you want to say about my life and how you want to govern it. I am going to create my own standards and I'm going to follow them and disregard yours. 
And so we go off down our own path and do what we want. Sin is never just a mistake or an error or a mess up. If it is sin, it is active rebellion and disregard against the holy law of God. That's why sin is evil. Not because it breaks man's laws, but because it breaks God's law. That's his first argument against sin. His second argument comes in verse 5, and he argues against sin from the design and errand of the Lord Jesus into this world. Why else is sin to be avoided and fled from? It's because the very purpose for which Jesus came into the world was to, verse 5, take away sins. The believer ought not to pursue sin because the purpose for which the believer's Savior came into the world was to take away sin. But that's his mission. And yet you claim him as your Savior and your Lord. How can it be that you would continue to persist in sin? Jesus came to do this. Yeah, but I'm going to live this way. They don't match up. You're in a tug of war with Jesus. He came to take away sin. You come to indulge in it. Cannot be. Third argument against sin comes in verse 6. He argues against sin from the opposition between sin and a real union or adhesion to the Lord Christ. Verse 6 says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The reality is that if you persist in a way of life that is completely at odds with God and his word, you have no union with God. You don't know him. You haven't seen him by faith. You don't really know what he's like. And this is such a, a shot against those teachers who are saying, okay, you can know God and that salvation. Well, if you really, really, really know him, you know he's light and in him is no darkness at all. And you adhere to his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And if you're so adhered to him, how can you persist in sin and yet still claim to be united to him? He goes on and gives a fourth reason against sin in verse 7. And this is from the connection between the practice of righteousness and the state of righteousness. Verse 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. We have to understand the way that we enter into a relationship with God is not based on our own merit. We mustn't think that we can just work our socks off to be good enough before God. That's an impossibility. We're so defiled in sin that we can never earn our way to God. So when he's talking about practicing righteousness, he's not talking about that in a meritorious way. There is this doctrine known as justification by faith alone, which simply means we recognize that in ourselves we're completely bereft of any merit, any effort, any goodness that could ever work our way up to God. As a matter of fact, we need God to come to us, and that's what he did in his son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to die for sins, so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. It is simply by believing in him by which God credits to you the righteousness you need in order to enter into his kingdom. A foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, not one of your own making, but one of the Son of God's making. 
and he credits that to your account. He gives that to you on the merit of Christ in him alone. And Jesus, through his blood shed on the cross, forgives your sins so that God can look at you and declare you righteous. And if you are righteous like that, how else can you live than to live in the path that Christ has set for you to walk in the good works that he's planned for you, not in a meritorious way, but in a way of a changed life, forgiven of sin, now sanctified by the word of God. So he who practices righteous, righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. You know, if you, if you spend even a few sober moments of reflection on your own life, alongside a sober reflection of the purity of God, you could never come to the conclusion by saying, I'm good enough. God will accept me on my own merit. That, that's ridiculous. The only righteousness that God can accept is the righteousness of the Son, but then that righteousness begins to work itself out in our life of sanctification. And if you don't see that, and you haven't come to really know him or seen him in the first place. John goes on and gives another argument against sin, and this one is from the relation between the sinner and the devil. In verse 8, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What's the devil been doing from the very start? Sinning. How could it be that those who are rescued by the one who came to take away sin would then persist in the works of the devil? You cannot do that. It cannot be. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. So then the one who has been rescued by Jesus will no longer show that family, family relationship with the devil, but rather a family relationship to God. He just has two more arguments, one in verse 9, which is an argument against sin from the connection between regeneration and the relinquishment of sin. Verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This is simply declaring that when God enters your life. He gives you new life. And that new life is a new nature that cannot persist in the same ways as before. Conviction comes over your sin. You want to turn away from it. Oh, sure, it's hard. Sure, you still feel the desire to go after sin, but there's a new desire in you where you want to honor God. You cannot persist in that sin. And then the last argument against sin that he gives is in verse 10, which is from the discrimination between the children of God and the children of the devil. This really sums it up. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you are of God, then you will not persist in unrepentant sin. But if you persist in sin, then you are not of God. And John actually says, you are of the devil. Are you of God? 
Or are you of the devil? No one wants to say, except for Satanists maybe, that they're of the devil. No one wants to say that. But what does your life show? Who is in your life? What you do proves who you belong to. And I want to circle back to those two verses, verses 5 and 8, because they explain why the Son of God came into the world. This isn't really a doom and gloom message. I know there's a lot of talk about sin, but this is really actually a good news message because the reason the Son of God came into the world is to deal with that which you need Him to deal with most in your life. And when you come to know the reason He came, you will know if He came for you. Knowing why He came is crucially important to know how you are to respond to Him. I'll just give you a quick illustration. You need to know why Christ came. If you are in your home, you hear a loud knock on your door, and you go and answer it, two firefighters at the door, fully dressed, all their rescue gear. Very urgently, they say to you, there is a forest fire that is continues in the path and is coming straight for this neighborhood. We are evacuating this neighborhood right now. You don't have time to grab your belongings. Get your loved ones and go. It's a matter of minutes between life and death. You need to leave now. And you hear that. And you say, oh, that's great. Why don't you come in for some tea? I just made some scones. Sit down, let's have a little chat. Let's talk more about this fire that you saw. That's not an over-the-top illustration. Jesus, the Son of God, came, took on flesh to take away sins. And if you hear him knocking at the door and you open the door and he tells you why he's come and you invite him in for a little bit of tea, you're as foolish as the person who hasn't listened to the firefighters. He came to take away sins. That's why he appeared. That's the way John puts it. That word shows up in both verse 5 and verse 8. He appeared. He appeared. That's referring to his in our incarnation. It's really his birth announcement, but it's a strange way to put it. We don't put on our birth announcements, do we, when little Johnny is born on February 2nd, you know, 2020, we don't say, Johnny appeared. But Jesus, the Son of God, appeared. He showed up. He, he was revealed, is what the word means. He was made known. He was shown. He appeared because before that he had existed, but he hadn't appeared like this. 
Jesus, the Son of God, had existed for all eternity. It assumes his pre-existence as the Son of God. He is the one through whom everything was made. He is the one who was in the beginning with God and the one who was God. And then, one day, through the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary, conceiving his child, and then giving birth, he appeared. That's the story of Christmas. He came and although he is the son of God and truly God, he now took on humanity and he had a human mind, a human body, a human will, truly man and yet still truly God. And as he appeared, he was there, a little bundle of flesh, a little baby, so real and so truly human that he could be held in the arms of his young mother and yet still the Son of the Most High, so real that you could see him, hold him, and wrap him in swaddling cloths, and yet the pre-existent one. He was so human in his appearing that in many ways he looked just like everybody else. If you saw him, you wouldn't think of anything remarkable about him. He was so human that he slept when he was tired, he ate when he was hungry, he grew angry at injustice, he felt compassion toward those who were in need. And yet he was so divine that he walked on water, raised the dead, healed the sick, turned water into wine, controlled nature, stopped the wind and the waves. And when he opened his mouth, speak, everyone knew that he spoke totally different than anyone else had ever spoken. He spoke as one who had authority. He spoke as God. Truly human, truly God, appeared. And although he was just like us, there is one way he wasn't like us, it says in verse 5, in him there was no sin. Did you know, we use that phrase, to err is human? Not true. You do not have to err in order to be human. Jesus, fully, truly human, he never erred. He was without sin. It shows us that there is humanity without sin, and it's in Christ. In him there is no sin, and not since that first Adam was there a man who walked on this planet without sin. Every one and last one of us has to declare that we have sin, otherwise we're just deceiving ourselves and calling God a liar, and the truth is not in us. Hebrews puts it this way regarding the sinlessness of Christ, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. For Jesus to be without sin obviously means that he was perfect. That means Every action he took was not only not wrong, it was always right. And every word that he spoke was not only not wrong, it was always right. And every motive that he ever had was not only not wrong, it was always right. He is pure. Not the kind of purity that just focuses on the sense of being without defect, but the purity that is full of undiluted holiness righteousness, justice, wisdom, and love. 
I think we have become too accustomed with the presence of sin to know how absolutely radical that claim is, that Jesus was without sin. We read the Sermon on the Mount, for example, and we see the, the great ethic that is there of turning the other cheek, of forgiving your enemies, of not worrying, as a matter of fact, of loving your enemies, seeking first the kingdom. But it can seem a bit pie in the sky to us, unrealistic, because the world is cutthroat. There are few who turn the other cheek. There are few who seek anything other than their own selfish ambitions. There are few who are free from worry. There are few who grant forgiveness quickly. There are few who don't struggle with lust. And none do it all, save one. The Lord Jesus, when he walked in this world, was without sin, and he practiced what he preached. He loved his Father perfectly, and he loved his neighbor to the uttermost, even the point of giving his own life for his enemy. This matters tremendously that Jesus appeared without sin because it shows that he is who he said he is. If you ever have read some of the, the Greek myths out there, you should be very disappointed with the gods that they present because they're just like us. A bunch of like incompetent, whimsical babies. The Son of God, who truly appeared in this world, lived on a level that shows us He is divine, without sin. When He took flesh to Himself, and yet still remaining without sin, not only was He the Son of God, but now, as John the Baptist puts it, He is the Lamb of God. He was God's Lamb, without spot, or blemish, full of perfection, the one whose blood and his alone could be shed as the perfect sacrifice and the substitute so that our sins could be washed away. And so John says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. That's the reason he came. That's the reason he is perfect, so that we and have our sins taken away. Some people would want the Son of God to, to appear in this world just to deal with the symptoms of the world. We recognize every last one of us knows that there are problems in the world. There's hunger, food shortages, diseases, all that type of stuff. And we would love it if Jesus just came and kind of provided food, health care, and financial security and be like, we're good. You can go now. And Jesus, to some degree, did that when he came. He, he healed the sick. He fed the hungry. But when he came, he didn't come just to slap a Band-Aid on the problems of this world. He came to deal with the core problem. He went deeper than the symptoms. He went to the source of the disease. He came to take away sins. So I was with my mom this week. There was a pastor from her church who came and sat by her side and just talked to her for a few moments and then prayed with her. And a very touching moment. And as he prayed, and he was just thinking and reflecting to the Lord about uh, the different losses he's experienced in his own life and then uh, losses going on around him. 
in this very moment, started to, to get choked up, have tears come down his face. And he finished his prayer, he turned to me, and through the tears he said to me, isn't it awful what sin has done in this world? If you try to keep sin out of the picture, you will never know the problem in this world. And then you will never really know the solution to the problem, which is the one who came to save his people from their sins, the one who came to take away sins. We must praise the name of God that when his son appeared in the world, it was not just to apply a band-aid, but to fix the problem to bring a cure. Isn't that exactly what you want a doctor to do? To fix the problem? And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to deal with sin. And he came to deal with it by taking it away. And certainly we see that he did that by being the sacrifice for sin. Perhaps you know the event of the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16. There are two goats that would be offered that day. One would be a physical sacrifice, and the other one would be described this way as Aaron the high priest laying his hands on the head of that goat, confessing over all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, puts it on the head of that goat, and then sends it into the wilderness and basically waves goodbye. And that's what we see when Jesus came into the world. He, the Savior of our sins, takes away our sins so we can say goodbye to our sins. They're taken away. They're gone. They're forgiven. Our slate is wiped clean. But this is more comprehensive than just the forgiveness because this whole passage is not just about forgiveness. It's about the practice of sin. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, not just the guilt of it, but the presence of it, the power of it in your life. And so when Jesus comes into your life, you should have more than just a goodbye to guilt. You should say goodbye to the presence and practice of sin in your life to some degree. That's the message John is giving. And you have to ask yourself, questions. Do you just like the forgiveness and kind of the clean conscience that you get now? Or do you let Jesus go all the way in his comprehensive salvation and begin to produce in you a love for righteousness and a hatred for sin? Have you seen anything in your life change because of Jesus? Has your life in any way changed? Is there any sin you can say goodbye to? Again, I'm not saying any of us perfect in this room. But has he taken away any sin in your life? If he hasn't, then his purpose has not been completed in you. And if his purpose has not been completed in you, it's not because he has failed. He never failed. It's because you have not yet known the true Savior of the in the way that you know him, as you look to his cross, there he died as a sacrifice for sin. And you confess, he's my Savior. Him, him alone. Nothing I can do. I'm empty him. I cling to him. I repent of my sins. And I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I cling to him alone. 
He is everything. I am nothing. I belong. And he will bring transformation to you. I guarantee you. I know we all struggle with things. I know what I struggle with. You know what you struggle with. But the question here is, is there anything in your life that you can say, Jesus took away that sin, not just the guilt, the very presence of it. That's why I came. That's why I came. I told you there are two verses, but I've run out of time. But just look at verse 8. Spend some time thinking about this. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Not only did Jesus come to take away sins from you, he also came to destroy the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. And he did that really the same way he does it for you. He died on the cross, stripping Satan of any accusation he can bring against God's people. The devil has been struck, and the Son of God is victorious. Do you know him? If you have seen the work of Christ in your life, that practical way, so that you long for righteousness, you want to live for him, and you've seen ways that you say goodbye to sin, guess what? That's how you know you have eternal life, because that's why Christ came. But if that's totally absent from your life, you need to spend some time thinking, what's going on? in my life. Where am I at? Who do I look for? Who do I know? Who's in charge? Please consider. Look to the Word of God. Read the Gospels. Consider the claims of Christ. Bow your knees. Confess me as it will save you from your sins. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given such a sufficient Savior one who has come to save us from our sins. We marvel at this, Lord. This is the goodness of the gospel. We praise your name that you have done it. We lay no claim to doing it on our own. You have done it all for us. Father, I pray that you would encourage those who know you here, that you would remind them of why Christ has come to them. And Lord, that you would begin and continue that good work in them to free them from the shackles of sin, Lord, I pray for those who are still lost in, in their sin, that you would be merciful to them. Open their eyes to the glory of Christ. Save them from their sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.